0: I want to ask for you to join me in prayer and we'll begin our time. Father, I'm humbled by the songs. I, I, I feel like the gospel truths in those, I could sit and think about them and, and, and marinate on them and just be done. Humbled before you, recognizing my dependence on you, recognizing your greatness, your mercy, your kindness, your love such wonderful themes. Thank you for granting those to us. Pray that you be honored now through our conversation together, our our, our look at your word and what it has to say for us in our lives. Please, Father, be gracious and give me clarity, clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and open each heart to genuinely consider to be willing to receive and submit to Your will, your word, your words that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Prejudice is a uh, distasteful word in our society. Prejudice against people of different backgrounds, different societies, different cultures, different ethnicities. Prejudice against uh, various ideologies or lifestyles. Prejudice against dogs, cats. You know you're out there. Prejudice towards certain types of foods. If someone senses prejudice in another person, it's, it's often seemed... Well, uh, there's, there's a lot of sensitivity towards it, and they're very, very, very quick to point it out as negative. Why? Why is that? Well, part of it is because of just the definition of the word itself and all that it connotes. Dictionary.com defines it this way. Prejudice is an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand. Or number two, any preconceived opinion or feeling, either favorable or unfavorable. But we can see that usually it's, it's associated with a negative feeling towards something. And usually it's associated with rendering uh, opinion or judgment prior to much uh, interaction or experience or exposure. Well, this morning I want to encourage us to prejudice. I want to encourage us, I'm hoping to instill in each one of us an extreme prejudice, a a violent bias, a harsh and unfavorable opinion. And I want this prejudice to be aimed at sin, especially the sin in our own lives. I want for us to see, to feel, to develop a prejudice that helps us understand and live out John Owen's famous statement, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That sounds kind of harsh, kind of negative, a little bit biased. But how about J.C. Ryle when he says this, for one thing, resolve at once by God's help to break off every known sin however small. These men, great men, godly men, reflect an extreme prejudice against sin. And I'm hoping that we can develop this same harshly negative perspective. I'm hoping that we can do it prior to much more continued experience with sins. My prayer is that this prejudice will help us flee quickly and deal harshly with sin when we do encounter it. But before we move too far, we have to establish the same understanding of what sin is. And I appreciate J.C. Ryle's succinct definition in his book Holiness. He says this, I say furthermore that a sin, to speak more particularly, consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. So, we're speaking of developing a prejudice, an extreme bias against doing anything that runs contrary to God's expressed will, anything, no holds barred, no pet favorites exempted. And even as I say this, I acknowledge that this, this is something that God has been working in my heart on to a serious degree. I I'm preaching this to you and to myself both feeling and having felt the cut of God's word having felt the conviction of God's holy spirit so this is not me on a high horse this is not me on a different level this is me speaking to us from God's word and I'm going to use a lot of scripture I'm going to use a lot of of godly dead and living men who who are much further along in the process than I am to to communicate much of this truth. And so, with that foundation laid, I want to give you five reasons, five reasons to target sin with extreme prejudice. The first one is this. Targeting sin is God's will for us. So often, people say, ah, if only I knew God's will for my life. How do I find out God's will for my life? Well, this is an, this is an easy, easy one right here. God's will, very cut and dry, is that we abstain from sin. Now we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture, like I said, so you can, you can either flip there to 1 Thessalonians 4 right now, or you can just listen as I read these passages. But 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3, says this. For this is the will of God. Oh, that should make your radar go up. And say, well, I want to hear this. I want to listen to this. I want to yield to this. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, knowing that lustful passion can refer both to sexual sins but also just, just a, an overly zealous desire and feeling for things that are not in conformity with God's will. Verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. It's so clear. This is God's will. Jesus himself spoke very strongly about targeting sin with a very, very harsh bias, with an extremely um, violent illustration that we read several times in the Gospels, specifically here, Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says this You've heard it, it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, here he goes, not nullifying, but revealing the heart. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's using that sin as a specific example for the overarching principle. Action is one thing, but now how about your heart? And then here's his extreme prejudice. He says, verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is not saying literally to remove your physical hand. He's saying remove, throw off, treat violently with extreme harshness any facet or area of your life that draws you into sin, that provokes you to sin, that is an area of sin you don't coddle it. You don't, you don't treat it gently or softly, violently. Second Timothy 2, Paul gives the command. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Again, flee from youthful lusts. Those those passions that are often associated with immaturity that reflect an, un, an unawareness, a lack of discernment regarding the relationship between sin And godliness. But so often we toe the line when we are commanded to flee. So often we coddle sin when we're commanded to treat it harshly. God forgive us for these things, for flying in the face of His expressed and clearly communicated will. And for what? For a few seconds of pleasure with an illicit website? For a few extra bucks here? A few extra bucks there? For the approval of a few humans or who, who, who are simple pottery in the hands of the Creator God? If you peel back our, our sins and our struggles, those, those are what are at the root of them. But see, God has bought us, Jesus has paid for us, and we belong to him. So let us obey him, knowing that he will demand an account for each thought, for each action, for each course of decision and and direction that we take. So how true to his will are our lives? Targeting sin is God's will for us. Furthermore, it's it's a manifestation of our spiritual reality. It's a manifestation of our spiritual reality. We see this several places in Romans 6, and Pastor Rick has preached through this, but I find in my own heart, uh, it doesn't take long to need to be reminded again. So Romans 6, starting in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, so there's a reality, correct? Correct? Assuming we are believers, assuming we are Christians, that is the reality. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, For you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 8, starting in verse 12, says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There's that precious reality. These are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So consider yourselves dead to sin because you are children of God. Galatians 5, verse 16 says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 19 says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, angry outbursts, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How's that for clarity? (laughs) But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have been redeemed by him out of darkness and into light, have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. There is a spiritual reality for each one of us if we are in Christ, if we claim to be in Christ, if we've accessed His forgiveness, if we've, if we've availed ourselves of His grace. There's a spiritual reality, a transformation that has happened And targeting, targeting sin with this kind of extreme prejudice manifests that, that spiritual reality, Lord willing, or potentially the other spiritual reality. Because these statements are so clear. If this is the reality, then these are your actions. This is our lifestyle when this is the reality. And so the question to ask ourselves after reading these passages are these, does my physical reality reflect my spiritual reality? Do I live as a child of God or a redeemed person who belongs to Jesus Christ? Or is there a contradiction between those realities? And if so, those are the areas to, ex- to target with extreme prejudice. We know there are contradictions in each one of our lives. And there always will be. But the question is, what do we do with that? And To reflect that spiritual reality, we target those areas. We hate those areas. We loathe those areas with extreme prejudice. Otherwise, we misrepresent our master and we belie what is supposedly that reality that we claim, that radical transformation that has happened to our whole being, our outlook, our thoughts, our desires. Your willingness and your prejudice in targeting sin reflects your spiritual reality. Targeting sin is also a means for corporate purity. See, this is not just a self-oriented or an introspective issue. It's not simply an individual concern. The biblical description of our church is a body, right? The Bible talks about our church body, both the universal church as a whole, but then even our individual church as a body. So he's he's kind because that's an illustration we can grab onto, we can we can understand. When my body hurts, whether it's I've thrown up my back or whether I have a blister on my toe, when my body hurts the rest of my body is affected. Your gait changes, your posture changes. Other parts of your body start to do things to, to create that, and uh, to, to, to treat that, and to um, minister to that. But also, pain, disease, sores, illness affects other parts of your body. It spreads. You let a sore fester on your hand, and gangrene can spread to your entire body until you're dead. And so the same thing here. This church body can be affected by sin. 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to what Paul says to that church. He says, with an incredulous tone, he says, it is actually reported that there's immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, as someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. See the response to sin? They became arrogant. They did not mourn so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Down in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Here's his warning. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little sin in the midst, leavens the whole lump Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Leaven in this illustration is sin. It says a little bit of it spreads and affects the whole lump, the whole church. Clean it out. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, no sin of sincerity and truth. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14, has a similar thought. It says this, pursue peace with all men. This is a joint venture. And the sanctification, the holiness, the, the set-apartness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many may be defiled. You hear the danger in this? That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who revealed his godlessness by selling his own birthright for a single meal. That corporate nature of those verses right there reveals us that we help each other mortify our sin, to use that old word. Kill it. Not to be Christian police. Who are running around shaking the finger at everybody because of a sense of superiority or a sense of coming at one another and judgment on their weakness. But concern, love, care that each one of us see Jesus in joy and not in judgment. Why do we need this? Because we miss things in our lives. We miss things in our lives. We are not independent. We are not self-sufficient. Again, this is a whole body designed to work together for, for my right hand to be able to say to my left arm, arm, you've got a, you've got a big sore over there. I'm going to bandage you up and help you take care of that sore so that it doesn't affect the rest of the body because we, we miss it. We need each other because, as we read in Jeremiah 17, the heart, our hearts Deceitful, more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. Folks, look around you, and I'm serious. Look around you, to your left, to your right, behind you, in front of you. Do you care for these people? Do you care for their souls? For their eternal well being. Then target sin with extreme prejudice. Sin in your own life and help others do the same in their lives. Put off even those respectable sins. Put them off yourself. Help others put them off. And welcome help in your own life. Ah, brother. Thank you for seeing that and for having the love and care to come and tell me that you see sin in my life because I want to see Jesus in joy, not in judgment. Thank you for your care. Targeting sin is a means for corporate purity. It's also a means It also reveals our awareness of Christ's return. Romans 13, verse 11 says this. Do this. He's just given some ethical commands for how to live righteously. And Paul says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Wake up for now salvation. And he's talking ultimate salvation. He's talking the return of Christ ultimate salvation is nearer to us than when we believed the night is almost gone and the day is near therefore because of that because Christ is returning therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light let us let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality not in strife and jealousy Ah, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, make, make a little provision for the flesh and its lust. No, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read from the New English translation that puts it a little bit more accurately, a little stronger. It says this, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ... So even there we see that reality, right? If you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So now he points us above where Christ is. He says, keep thinking about things above, not things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with, with, with Christ in God. There's that reality. But here's the return. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes back, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. So, so, put to death, put it to death, whatever in your nature belongs to the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Folks, Christ is coming back. And the manner in which we treat our sin reflects our understanding and our awareness of Christ's imminent return. Your kids probably never do this, but mine do sometimes. I'll go, and I'll, uh, uh, specifically, one of my children, my middle one, (laughs) my sweet, sweet Natalie, I ask her to get dressed for bed. Natalie, go up, get your jammies on. I'm going to come up in a couple minutes, and I want you to be done. And I'll leave, <coughs> and I'll expect her to be done when I return. So I allow plenty of time for her to accomplish this task, right? And then I and then I start heading back up to her room, and I hit the stairs, and they and they creak, and I hear this ba 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 drawer drawer ba ba you know. And, and I, I get up to the, the, the room, and I come through the doorway, and she's got one pant leg on, and she's got her arms like this through the through the shirt and this panic looked on her face because I see where she's at, and I see these toys over here. (laughs) Yes, she waited too long. She waited too long to be ready. She didn't really think I'd be back that quickly, and she frittered away her time. Brothers, sisters, are you frittering away your time? Am I losing the opportunities that I have? Will Christ come back and find us half-dressed and and ill-prepared? Are you wasting your allotted days playing with toys when the master will return at any moment to reconcile the accounts? So our prejudice towards sin reflects the reality or lack thereof of our understanding of Christ's imminent return. Feel that imminence. It's a truth, folks. It's a truth. Feel that truth and let it fuel your bias against the sins which will only bring you shame at Christ's return. Put those sins to death. Number five, targeting sin prevents larger problems. Because you see, a, a biblically extreme prejudice towards sin will result in us taking devastating aims at, at, at sins in the little stages. It will result in us being violent towards those little sins, which will in turn prevent disastrous consequences. But if you leave the little sins, disaster will strike. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, it traces the, the, the The course and outcome of sin. It says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished—not not 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 just not just acted out, but brought to completion—when sin has its way with us, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived my beloved brethren. Hebrews 3, verse 12, voices a a similar admonition. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day while it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So you hear those two dangers, death, hardening. J.C. Ryle agrees with the hazard that the Bible describes. He says this, nothing darkens the eyes of the mind so much and deadens the conscience so surely as an allowed sin. It may be a little one, but it is not the less dangerous for that. A small leak will sink a great ship, and a small spark will kindle a great fire, and a little allowed sin in like manner will ruin an immortal soul. Yet again, he says, there are two ways of coming down from the top of a church steeple. One is to jump down, and the other is to come down by the steps, but both will lead you to the bottom. So also, there are two ways of going to hell. One is to walk into it with your eyes open. Few people do that, but the other is to go down by the steps of little sins, and that way, I fear, is only too common. C.H. Spurgeon, he says, when When Satan cannot get a great sin in, he will let a little one in. Like the thief who goes and finds shutters all coated with iron and bolted inside, at last he sees a little window in a chamber. He cannot get in, this thief. So he puts a little boy in, that he may go around and open the back door. So the devil has always his little sins to carry about with him, to go and open back doors for him. And we let one in and say, oh, (laughs) it is only a little one. Yes, but how that little one becomes the ruin of the entire man. If you think about the Israelites and all that happened to them when they, when they conquered Canaan, think about what God told them to do. He told them to extinguish the Canaanites. Canaanites to drive them out, not to intermingle, to to put them to death, to to refuse their gods, to refuse their influence. Do not intermarry. Do not let them affect you. And what did they do? They let them stay. They didn't drive them out. They didn't extinguish them as God commanded for the sake of their sins, the just judgment for their sins. And instead, they let those, those sins remain in the land And ultimately, they started worshiping other gods. Ultimately, their people started intermarrying. Ultimately, the kingdom falls apart. Our ability to go soft on sin is amazing to me. My ability to go soft on sin is distressing to me. See, we have biblical examples, and yet so often we flirt with sin. Don't you look cute? We have past historical writers such as Ryle and Spurgeon and others begging us to be vicious with it, and yet rationalization comes so quickly. Oh, this isn't so bad. This isn't as bad as last time. This isn't as bad as Joe Smith over there. We have songwriters encouraging us to understand the danger. I don't have time, but Casting Crowns has a song called The Slow Fade. I encourage you to go listen to it, watch the video. It'll help you understand in concrete terms the danger here, the danger of those larger problems that comes if we do not target sin with extreme prejudice. Now, you might wonder, why, why preach on a subject like this? In a, I mean, we're, we're, we're a Bible church, right? We're, we're conservative evangelicals. We understand this already. Well, I don't want to offend you, so I'll let J.C. Ryle say some words. He says this, he says, says, true Christianity is a fight. True Christianity, let us mind that word, true. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. It is not the real thing which was called Christianity at his time 1,800 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are on the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die, but you never see any fight in their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and harsh indeed and uncharitable, but it certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. It is not the religion which produces real holiness. True Christianity is a fight. Folks, there is a battle. This particular battle is a part of the overall war that rages on, but this is a battle before us that we are called to fight. But the natural question that arises is how? How do we fight? How do we target sin? There's lots of practical ways to do this. You can find umpteen zillion ways to, to, to play this out in your life, accountability partners, prayer programs, computer software, uh, particular books. Uh, I have a worksheet that actually is really good in the sense of helping you just work through and understand sin and the struggle and, and the consequences and how it all plays together. There's worksheets. There's all sorts of things to assist you in that process. But I think more importantly, there's a mindset. Mm. There's a a heart set. That if that courses through us with each pump of our blood, and if if that moves through us with each breath of our lungs, each thought in our minds, then it will serve to target sin with a yet unheard of intensity. And what is that mindset, that heart set? That is faith a real, genuine faith, the choice to believe the truth, the belief in this book and all that it reveals to such a degree that it actually changes us. That's faith. Every situation brings about a choice, a choice to obey or a choice to sin, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's called The Obedience Option by David Haig. Little guy, easy read, other than the conviction factor. David Haig in The Obedience Option says this Sin is fundamentally rebellion against God Himself. We sometimes let ourselves minimize sin by believing that it is just ah, the, inevitabil- the inevitable mistakes we humans make in relation to one another, but this is not the reality. Sin is, first and foremost, the willful decision to go against what God commands us. As Christ followers, and we're going to do more on that right now, we no longer sin because we have to. We sin because we choose to. That goes back to the reality of who we are. We sin not because we have to, but because we choose to. This forces an inescapable observation. This discussion that we're having right here is for those who have been redeemed, have been regenerated, have been freed from sin and empowered by the Holy Spirit because this is not a self-willed battle of wild American, grit your teeth, get her done type spirit. That won't succeed. That will yield you nothing. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have a different fight with sin to fight You have the fight of getting out from under its mastery, which is only done by confession of your sin and repentance and turning away from that sin into Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for your forgiveness and for your faith. But for those who have repented and placed our trust in Christ, we are equipped to make the right choices. We are equipped for victory, to win. And that victory is available to us through faith-filled choices. Listen to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on, something you have to do, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the men around us, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world, forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. You'll find that here. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You take up that shield, faith, the ability to say the truth of this is more real than the truth that I can see in the world, than the the truth that I might tell myself about how pleasurable this will be or what this will get me or anything like that. And with that shield of faith, in choices, you extinguish those arrows. Listen to David Haggigan. again. One time, when engaged in a conversation with a young man about his spiritual failures in the sexual realm, <laughs> I really got irritated at him. He started making excuses for his immorality, trying to explain that he had gotten to a situation where, as much as he didn't believe it was right, sexual activity had been inescapable. Inescapable. He had to do it. In essence, he was telling me that there was nothing he could do about it. It really wasn't his fault since God had created him with strong sexual needs and urges. When I heard all the garbage I could take, I interrupted him and asked, suppose that I came into your room and caught you and your girlfriend as you were just starting this inevitable process. Suppose I took out 10 $100 bills and told you they were yours if you told her to leave. What would you do? Now, Haig says, I know that what you're thinking, he's speaking to us, the readers, he says, it's pretty stupid theology to think you can pay people to stop sinning, that you can purchase righteousness for others if you have enough cash. But I learned something vital that day when this young man responded immediately, she'd be gone, I need the cash. I looked at him carefully, and after a long pause, asked, so... So what happened to the irresistible forces of lust? What happened to, there's no way I could stop the inevitable? And what we both realized at that point was a very simple truth. One passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. The only way to overcome a passion for sin is with an overwhelming passion for righteousness. And this overwhelming passion for righteousness is actually a mindset that the Bible calls faith. To look at this and to say, I believe that this is so true that I want to pursue it above any and everything else. That's faith. So consider this in your assessment of sin in your life. If your desire for those moments of ungodly pleasure outweigh your desire to obey Jesus Christ, what does that say about your, 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 your weak belief in, in the, the cost of his sacrifice to save you? Spurgeon says, I hate every sin because every sin that I see is the nails and spear of Christ. If your desire for the approval of this person these people outweighs your desire for the approval of God almighty that shows the level of your faith in who God is if your desire to acquire that coveted object surpasses your desire to be ready for Christ's return that makes it evident you don't really believe he'll return soon or that he won't really care when he returns If your desire for for comfort and ease in the brief 80-odd years of your life on earth overshadows your desire for heavenly reward and affirmation, that demonstrates a severe and startling lack of faith in you and in me of God's proclamations throughout Scripture of what is eternity, what is heaven, what is hell, who is God, if your desire for your fleshly lusts causes you to doubt your ability to overcome sin, then that shows you lack faith in the power of God. For it says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that works in us. And he's claimed, I will transform you. I will give you power to overcome And so every moment is a choice, a choice that reveals the object and strength of your faith. Feed your faith and target your sin. As your faith grows stronger, you'll find your prejudice growing and your aim becoming more and more deadly in eliminating sin. God, help us all in this endeavor. We're going to pray and... There will be someone here to talk to you in the prayer room. If you want to talk about this, pray about this, you could come up and talk to me. If you want to come to know Jesus Christ, if you want to submit and repent to him for the first time, we'd love to talk to you. If you want to submit your life to this, then we'd love to talk to you. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so humbled and I come before you so broken and so thankful for your conviction in this area for your conviction that sin is not my friend god help us to see to see the reality be gracious and and and, and remove the blinders from our eyes help us see the truth to love the truth of who you are and what you revealed in your word to such a degree that we We cannot stand our sin. Give us victory. We know you've promised it, and we're thankful for that. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.